I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter, reading this evening from verse 18 to verse 24. From verse 18 to verse 24 in the 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that searcheth out the heaven, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. Now, we've been considering this great and magnificent chapter of Isaiah's prophecy for a number of Sunday nights. And if we are to understand aright and truly the message of this particular section, which I've just read to you now, it is essential that we should have in our minds a fairly clear picture of the contents of the chapter as a whole. It is, of course, this great evangelical prophecy. This message that was given here to this prophet Isaiah some 800 years or so before the coming of the Son of God into this world, uh, the prophecy of his coming and of what he'd be like and what he'd do. It is a kind of synopsis, as we have seen in our studies of the Christian message and of the Christian faith. Now, all that is stated in the first 11 verses. There it is presented to us in all its glory. This astounding proclamation from God to men that in spite of their sin, because God has love and mercy, he has found a way to pardon our sins. So that though we deserve punishment and retribution, the message that comes to us in the gospel is one of comfort, is one of peace, and it's all because of what God has done in his only begotten Son. The gospel is a revelation to us of God's Way of salvation through Jesus Christ, his Son. The message is, behold, you are God. In other words, into the midst of the sin of this world and the hopelessness and the chaos of men in this world, God has sent his own Son. And he has sent him to make and to produce a way of salvation. There's never been anything like it. There never will be anything like it. It is entirely of God, and it's the greatest good tidings 
that mankind can ever know. So those who believe it are called upon to get them up into the high mountain and to lift up their voice and to lift it up and not to be afraid, but to proclaim it without fear or favor and with a holy boldness because it is an account of what God has done for sinful men in Christ Jesus. That's the message. Translating it into practical terms and into personal terms for every one of us, it's this. That it matters not how sinful a life we may have lived until this very moment. It matters not how godless we may have been and how vile in our conduct and behavior. However much we may have spurned the vice divine and spat upon the sanctities. If we but realize our sin and our condition and our rich desert of hell and perdition, and acknowledge it and confess it to God with humility, and turn to him and cast ourselves upon his love, and believe the message that he will give us as we do so concerning his Son and the way of salvation at this moment, without waiting a second, all our sins will be forgiven, blotted out as a thick cloud. We will be reconciled to God, we will be adopted as family, as children into his family. He will give us his spirit and the new nature. And he will lead us and guide us and shower his blessings upon us as our father. And ultimately at the end will receive us unto himself and into everlasting bliss and glory. That's the gospel message. That is the evangel of the New Testament here foreshadowed, pictured and prophesied. That's the whole message of the New Testament, the message that was preached by the apostles, the message that has been preached by the church throughout the running centuries, this astounding message. And yet, you see, we all know full well that we are confronted by this position, that the world doesn't believe it, that the world is living tonight in the mass and in the main as if this had never happened, as if it were not true. As if it indeed were nothing but a cunningly devised fable, an idle story, some sort of figment of men's disordered imaginations, some kind of fantasy worked up by some overwrought imagination. That is the simple fact, as I think you all will agree. And it has been the fact. And the great question that confronts us is, why is that? What's the matter with mankind? Why is it that men do not jump at such a message and cling to it at all costs and spend their time in praising and in thanking God for it? Well, that, it seems to me, is the question that is considered and argued and reasoned through by this very prophet in this 40th chapter of his prophecy from verse 12 to the very end of the chapter. He takes up our difficulties and our objections and he answers them. What a wonderful book the Bible is. What a wonderful God is God, if I may speak with reverence. He not only gives us his gospel, he commends it to us. He goes further. He even meets us with our difficulties and solves them and deals with them before our very eyes. Not concerned merely to tell us what he's done. He stoops to our weakness, he comes right down to us, and in his word to us he says, now this is your difficulty, isn't it? This is the thing at which you stumble. And he deals with it, and analyzes it, and unmasks it, answers it, 
And the whole case is stated plainly and clearly before us. That's precisely what you've got in this chapter. Now, we've already looked at the first way in which the, apostle, in which the prophet does that. It's the argument from verse 12 to verse 17. He starts out of once, of course, by saying that the real source of all this difficulty is our appalling ignorance of God and the true nature and character of God. And very especially in that section, in that paragraph, he's concerned to show this great point of what I've described as the inscrutability of God's ways. That was really the central argument there. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord? Or if you like, who can weigh the mind of God? Or being his counselor hath taught him. With whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? And you remember how the Apostle Paul takes that up and works out his own mighty argument and logical case about the whole presentation of the gospel in the second chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. He says the whole difficulty with you Greek philosophers is that you're trying to understand something that by hypothesis is beyond your understanding. Not that it is irrational, not that it itself is unreasonable, but because it's God's wisdom, your wisdom can't comprehend it. It's, it's too small. The thing itself is so great and your minds are so finite. In other words, the ultimate cause of trouble, he argues, there is intellectual pride. Man's fatal confidence in the ability of his own pygmy powers to span the mind of the eternal. How ridiculous it is. And the prophet has dealt with that argument. But here he goes on to a further step. And you notice how he introduces it. He's got a formula here which he uses in the 18th verse and again in the 25th verse. He stands back and says, well now, if that doesn't satisfy you, let me, let me approach you like this, he seems to say. Uh, you say, and I still I don't understand about God and about such a marvelous gospel. Well then, he says, to whom then will he liken God? Or what, uh, like, with what likeness will he compare him? And then he repeats it, as I say in verse 25. Uh, having again worked out an argument, he comes back again and says, To whom then will he liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? As if, uh, almost in desperation, he says, Now how can I put this to you? What is your trouble? What is the thing that's holding you up? Uh, what's the thing that's preventing your believing and accepting this gospel? And here in this particular paragraph we are looking at tonight, he again deals with this uh, great difficulty about uh, doubting God's power and God's ability to do what he has promised to do. Now that is mankind's stumbling block. Ah, oh, they say that gospel sounds all right, but can these things be done? Do these things really happen? It's all very well to tell us things like that, but can such things really take place? Well, says this man, if you don't believe it, your trouble is that you still don't understand 
the true nature and being of God. He's put it in general before. He's reminded us that God is the one who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. He's told us about him already that the nations to God are but as a drop of the bucket and as are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and that his glory is such that if you offered all the beasts on Lebanon and burnt up their bodies with all the trees on Lebanon cut down still, it wouldn't be enough to satisfy this glorious God, because all nations before him are as nothing, and are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. But still, you see, he seems to realize that these people can't rise to it, they can't grasp it. Well, why not? Well, evidently, they're thinking about God in a wrong way. So he issues a challenge to them. He says, what are your ideas of God? With whom are you comparing God? Are you, I wonder, he says, thinking of God in terms of idols? Is that your standard of measurement and of comparison? Or are you perchance uh, thinking of God in terms of the great princes of the world, or perhaps the great judges, the wise men, the men who can hold the legal balance and can sift and analyze evidence, and having thought and pondered can deliver a sound and a just verdict? Is that the way you're thinking of God in terms of idols, princes, and great judges and great men? And he takes up the challenge. He wants to help them, so he deals with this. And this, as I understand it, is the way in which he puts his argument. He says, it's perfectly clear to me that you believe in such. You believe in your idols. You believe in your princes. You believe in your judges and in your great men. And yet, though you can repose your faith and your trust and your belief in them... You say you can't believe in God and in the things that he has revealed. What a position. What an exposure of unbelief. That's his message as I understand it. So he proceeds to deal with that attitude, with that position, with that condition of mankind, this terrible state of unbelief, this staggering at the promises of God and this readiness to believe and to accept the promises of men, the princes and the judges and the trust that we put in our idols. Now there's his argument. And from that argument we are surely entitled to, de to uh, deduce certain clearly defined teaching in the Bible with regard to this unbelief from which mankind suffers in such a tragic manner. Oh, in a sense, it's the great theme of the Bible. Unbelief is our final curse. If only we all of us could believe in God tonight, and in God's Son, and in God's way of salvation, oh, what a different place this world would be. If only men believed it and practiced it, if only men exercised faith and embraced it, the whole face of the earth would be so changed it would indeed become paradise. All our troubles come ultimately from unbelief. It's the final sin. 
It's the thing that has dug the footsteps of mankind. It was the cause of the original trouble, a doubt, a query, a question. Hath God said, there you are at once, a query. And then you begin to inflate yourself and to exaggerate yourself. And you begin to ask your questions. It's all the manifestation of unbelief. So I say it's the great theme of the scriptures. But here, fortunately for us, the biblical case with regard to unbelief is unfolded and uh, unmasked before us in, in the form of these uh, simple propositions. The first one is surely this. That unbelief is unutterably foolish. What folly it is not to believe in God. Now, you can go through the Bible and you'll find that it's got many things to say about unbelief. Many things to say about sin. It talks about it as rebellion, as arrogance. It talks about it as lawlessness. It talks about it as missing the mark. It's got many terms which it applies to it. And yet I think you'll agree with me when I say that there is nothing that the Bible says quite so frequently about it as just this. It's unutterable folly. There are two psalms which put it in a perfectly clear manner. They come as a kind of thunderclap to us when we read them. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And that's the final word to say about a man who says there is no God. He's a fool. And when the Bible calls him a fool, what it means is that he's a foolish man. That he's dull, that he's stupid. That his real trouble is that he can't think straightly. That he's lacking in, in reason and in ability to understand. You remember how our Lord uses exactly the same term about a man who lived entirely for this world and wasn't rich toward God. The man who'd got his bonds bursting with the, the marvelous harvests that he'd had and who'd become so wealthy that his very riches had become an embarrassment to him. And he congratulates his soul and says, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And that night God said unto him, Thou fool! You're a fool! You think you're a hard-headed, wise businessman, a man of the world who is so wise, who hasn't become soft and got a religious complex and believes in God. Ah, he's the man of wisdom. But God's verdict is, Thou fool! Far from being a level-headed, far-sighted man, the real trouble with such a person is that he doesn't know how to think. He's a fool. Well, here I say that is the aspect of the matter that the prophet brings out in his own way with his own poetic imagery. But how plain and clear he puts it. This is how he puts it. He proves the folly of the unbeliever in this way. That the man who doesn't believe in God invariably believes in something. And what does he believe in? Well, he believes in idols. To whom then will he liken God, or what uh, likeness will he compare unto him? Here's the answer. The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. You see the trouble they make to make the, they go to, to make their idols? Then he says, he that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. That's his description of men 
as they are so busily engaged in making and in fashioning their idols. If they can afford it, they, they take a piece of gold, they take the most precious metal they can lay their hands on, they'll pay great money for it, and they get it fashioned into a particular form, and then uh, these final touches are put, the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth the silver chains. That's how they make their idols. All the best that they have, they put it into it because they believe in it and because they think that this is going to help them. It's something to which they pin their faith. It's something by which they live. Then there's this other curious statement about which the authorities are not agreed. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation uh, chooseth a tree that will not rot. Here is a man who is so poor that he can't make his idol of gold, nor of silver, nor of any precious metals. These precious metals, of course, are very expensive. And here's a man, he says, who he can't afford a precious metal. Well, what does he do? Well, he chooses the best type of wood he can get. He tries to find a piece of wood that's not likely to rot. The sort of wood that's well seasoned and hardened, it'll stand up to the elements and all the rigors of any climate. He chooses a tree that will not rot. And then he proceeds to fashion that, and he puts that up and worships that as his idol. I say the authorities a little bit disagreed at this point. Some of them say that that is just a description of poor people. That the world can be divided into rich and poor. The rich people have their golden idols. The poor people can't afford that, so they make them of wood, the best wood they can possibly get. Yes, but some others suggest this, and they may very well be right that this is a reference not so much to those who were originally poor, but to those who, who have uh, made so many idols and have spent so much money on their idols that they've made themselves poor in doing it. And that they've got nothing left now but uh, to buy a piece of wood the best they can get and turn that into an idol. Well, you see, it doesn't matter in a sense, except that that second exposition brings out this point that it emphasizes the belief of people in these idols. If men actually will make themselves poor in paying homage to them, and uh, in making them and in fashioning them to this extent, well, that is a measure of their faith and their belief in them. But whether we take this or the other explanation, you see the poor man even, he'll buy this piece of wood the best he can get in order that he may have his idol and his God whom he can worship. Now, these children of Israel who couldn't believe the message of God through Isaiah about God, they'd been turning to idolatry. These people whom God had made for himself, he'd taken a man called Abram and had turned him into a nation, and he'd done his wonders in their presence. They turned their backs on it all, and they went to idol worshipping. In other words, they believed in idols. And they gave themselves to that kind of thing. They say they can't believe in God, but they can believe in idols. Oh, my friends, I needn't keep you. The world is full of this kind of thing. People tell us that they're too intelligent and too able to believe in God. They can't do that sort of thing, they say. But look at the things which they do believe in. Look at the modern idols. They say that this gospel is something that they are far too intelligent to believe and to accept and submit to. But look at the things in which men do place their faith and their trust. 
Look at the gods that the world makes for itself, sometimes just share wealth, sometimes money, sometimes position and status, sometimes dress, just mere clothing. The desire to be thought great, or people who are considered great, they turn them into idols. Oh, there's no limit uh, to the uh, variety of idols that men and women make, and they're prepared to give themselves and impoverish themselves, as Isaiah here describes it. In doing these things, they'll give their time, their enthusiasm, their energy, and their money. There are people who even become bankrupt because they're trying to keep up to a social level that's beyond them. They're so keen on the thing, it's so much to them. I say they even become bankrupt in order to try to do it. That's exactly a repetition of what these people did in ancient times with their idols of gold and silver and things like that. There are people who are constantly in financial troubles and difficulties and having to borrow money simply to try to keep up that kind of thing. That's idolatry. They're worshipping that kind of life. They think it's marvelous. They think it's wonderful. They think it's going to be productive of results. And there are others who worship thought and who worship learning. There are people who undoubtedly worship science. They're always talking about it as if science was some kind of deity. They've turned something that is really abstract into something concrete. They said, but science teaches and says... Of course, there's no such thing. What they mean is that certain scientists say this or that. But you see, science has become a god, and we fashioned it and made it into a god, and we are bowing before it and we are worshipping it, this tremendous thing that's there over us and over the whole life of mankind in the world tonight. I needn't keep you. The modern man says, I believe in science. I believe in learning and in knowledge. He's turned his back on God. He can't believe this sort of thing. But he believes that the advance of knowledge and learning, it's really something that's going to save men and the world. It's going to put everything right and straight. Political action, all these things. These are the modern idols, the modern gods. You notice how he describes graphically the respect that people pay to their idols? The faith they place in them, the trust they have in them, and they go to all this trouble and to all this expense and there's nothing in a sense they won't do because they believe in these things. It's exactly the same with the princes and with the judges of the earth. The modern man, increasingly, it seems to me, believes in men and believes in great men. We surely all ought to be wide awake to this. It was the whole explanation, in a sense, of the tragedy of the last war. This idea of the superman, the dictator. The great men, yes, it's all very well for us to look on at what happened in Germany before the war. My dear friends, this country is rampant with the same thing in a sense. Not always the same great men, but great men. Belief in men. It's one of perhaps one of the greatest dangers still confronting the modern world. This tendency of people in a sheep-like manner to listen to any leader and to implicitly do what he tells them. 
Work it out for yourselves. There are many evidences of this and many manifestations of it. The tendency to turn men into gods, to idealize them, to write them up, to work them up in our imaginations. We, we put things into them that are not in them, rarely. We do it with men and with women. I could give you many illustrations of the thing I have in my mind. It's done with princes. And with that whole view of life, we turn them into idols. And it is done in the same way with this kind of person who is here summed up and depicted in the character of the judge. The wise men, the far-sighted leader. And uh, we are prepared to trust these men utterly and absolutely. We believe in their star, as we put it. We put a kind of aura around them, and we tend to say that, of course, they are ultimately infallible, and they can't go wrong. Oh, we say, you know, you don't always understand, but, oh, there's something there. There was a time when people believed in the divine right of kings, and they believed that there was a sort of divinity that doth hedge a king. Uh, they no longer believe it in that form, perhaps, but they believe it concerning certain men. And we turn these into our gods. Mankind, I say, believes in these princes, in these judges, and it respects them. We tend to do it with the philosopher. The philosophers, the wise men, the great men. And the average person who doesn't believe in God and in the Christian faith, he's got unbounded faith in the wisdom of these great thinkers, these great philosophers who are going to solve all the problems of life for us and who are going to lead us into some kind of paradise. The princes, the princes in every sense, and the judges, these wise, learned, profound men. And as the world shows its respect to its idols, it shows the same respect to these princes and judges. It puts its faith in them. It will do anything for them. It will submit itself to them and allow them to rule and to govern and to have almost a totalitarian control of their lives. They're lost in these things. Isn't that the position? Well, listen to the prophet's argument. He says, you are believers in idols and in princes and in judges. And yet, you don't believe in God. Oh, how terrible. Listen to him and his divine sarcasm. Having described all this production of images, he says, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and so on. That's God contrasting with these. What he means, you see, is this. You are idle after you've spent all your money on him, on the gold and the silver and all the rest of it has no existence at all. He has no being. The Bible is constantly exposing this. Listen to the 115th Psalm doing it, for instance. He says, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Listen to the description of them. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. 
They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. And they that make them are like unto them. And so is everyone that trusteth them. If I tried to add to that, I'd be a fool. It's all there, my friends. Oh yes, you employ the best engraver you can lay your hands on, because you want this to be a perfect image, a perfect idol. You're careful about the eyes, and the carving of the nose, and the formation of the ears, and the lips, and the hands, and the feet, and there it is, it's finished, and marvelous that was worshipped. But before you proceed to worship, ask a simple, obvious question. What can he do for you? Perfect eyes, yes, but he can't see. What a wonderful mouth, yes, but he can't speak. Look at those hands. Oh, the anatomy, the formation, everything's absolutely perfect, but he can't use them. Look at the feet, yes, but he can't walk. After you've done it all, and you say, how marvelous and how wonderful, it can do absolutely nothing, it's useless. I needn't have taken you to the Psalms. Isaiah himself does the self-same thing in the 46th chapter of this prophecy in an equally perfect manner. He tells us there that the difference between God and an idol can be put in this simple manner. An idol is a God that you have to carry. God is a God that will carry you. You see, when you've made your idol, he can't move, he can't do anything, and you've got to do everything for him. Men put their faith and their trust in idols, mere figures that are useless and can do nothing, and yet they don't believe in God, my friends. There's only one word for it, it's folly. People who make idols and who put their trust in idols are like the very idols that they've made. And it's exactly the same with the great men, with the princes, and with the judges of the earth. What of them? Well, listen to what he says. Yea, they shall not be planted, yea, they shall not be sown, yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. He, God, shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. He bringeth the princes to nothing, he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Isn't this clear and obvious to us, my beloved friends? Take all the idols that the world is worshipping tonight, what can they do? What was the value of the idols during the last war? How did they help you when your loved ones and dear ones were far away from home fighting? What was the value of these things when you had the information that some beloved son had suddenly been killed or a daughter killed in an air raid? What's the value of all these things to you when you lose your health? When you lie upon your deathbed? No, there's nothing there. They can't do anything. And likewise with these great men, these princes, and with these judges of the earth. My dear friends, they've been tried and they've failed us. We are living in the 20th century. 
The century that has followed the last century with all its learning and all its advance and all its knowledge? Are we still trusting to governments and to men, to princes and to powers? Do we still believe in human wisdom and philosophy and political action? What have these things done? Have they helped us? Haven't they all been proved to be vanity before our very eyes? Haven't they all failed us in the hour of need? The world is proving it before our eyes, and yet we trust these things. Though they're obvious vanity, we believe in them and we trust them. And we make a kind of religion of them. We believe in vanity and we do not believe in God. Don't you think that the prophet's argument is fully justified that unbelief is unutterable folly? Don't you see that he is perfectly fair in what he argues and in what he reasons? We believe in them and we don't believe in God. My dear friends, there's only one word to describe that kind of thing. It is sure folly. But let me say a word on the second matter which he argues out. The second point he makes is that unbelief is always tragic ignorance. And where do I find him saying this? Well, let me show you. He says it in two ways. He says it first of all in the 21st verse. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundation of the earth that it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in? What's he mean? Well, what he means is this. It's another great argument in the Bible everywhere. That for men not to believe in God is just to display a profound and tragic ignorance of the fact that God is, after all, the Creator. Haven't you heard this, he says? Didn't you know this? Hasn't this been something that has been known from the very dawn of civilization? We believe by faith that God made the worlds out of nothing. Now, that is, as you remember, the great argument of the Apostle Paul in that section of the first chapter of the epistle to the Romans that we have read together at the beginning. Paul argues there that mankind in sin and in unbelief is inexcusable and is utterly without an argument. Why? Well, he says, they are without excuse for this reason, that the invisible things of God have been clearly revealed from the very beginning, in creation, in nature. There is a proof and a manifestation of God. He says, if mankind hadn't had this revelation of God in nature, there would be some excuse for its unbelief and for its sin. But in view of nature, there is no excuse. God has revealed himself as the creator. Now, this is a famous argument. It's the argument, if you like, from design and from order and from arrangement. It's the perfection of a flower. It's the perfection of a little lamb. 
It's all that you see in the seasons coming regularly year by year and all the provision that God has made. It's the instinct in the bird that accounts for migration. It's all these things. Can you really explain it apart from God? The argument of the scripture is that that evidence is more than enough. It's the kind of argument that has put, been put in a much more feeble manner by Sir James Jeans and by others that they are driven by this very design and purpose to believe in an ultimate mind. But here it is. So that when a man doesn't believe in God, he's not thinking clearly about nature. He's not reasoning about creation. He's assuming things. He's taking things for granted. He's relying upon some hypothesis such as evolution, with its terrible gaps and with its piltdown men and all such things. He put his faith in that. A scientist gets up and says, the piltdown men has established this, and we believe it, and we say, marvelous. And there's never been a piltdown men. Now that isn't being cheap, my friends. I don't want to be cheap or unfair. I'm simply stating facts. We are more ready to believe in the theories and suppositions of scientists than we are to believe the evidence of creation and this ultimate mind of God that's behind it all. It's just a sheer fact. And it's our ignorance that makes us do it. If only we understood the heavens and the earth and all the handiwork of God, we'd believe in him. But sin has blinded us. We are ignorant. The God of this world has blinded our minds. And then let me say a passing word on the second argument which he brings. Which is in the 23rd verse. He tells us that God bringeth the princes to nothing. And maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. God has not only revealed himself in nature and creation, he has revealed himself also in history. Now, I read to you the 46th Psalm at the beginning in order that I might give you one of the brief, succinct statements of that particular argument. The argument of the psalmist is this, he says, consider these things. Look how wars have been caused to cease, how the spear and the bow has been broken in sunder, and the chariots destroyed. Who's done it all? The answer is God. And therefore he says, be still, give up, give in, and admit that he is God. Now the argument of the, of the scripture right through is just this, that the whole of history is a proof of the being of God. You can look at it, if you like, from the standpoint of secular history alone, and the rise of great dynasties and the fall of great dynasties. Watch them coming up, watch them thriving, watch them receding. Up they come, down they go. Why is that? Why do civilizations go down? What's the matter? Well, you may believe your modern historian who says that there is some implicit power in the very historical process that does that. You see, he's idealizing and deifying historical process. He's turning that into a God. But can you believe that? 
Is that adequate? I find it totally inadequate. I only know of one adequate explanation. It's that of this book. It is the Lord God Almighty that's sitting on the circle of the universe, that's controlling history. It belongs to him. He started it, he made men, he set it all going, and he's controlling it. He's allowed sin to come in, but that doesn't mean he's abdicated. And when men build up their tower of Babel and say that their own intelligence is enough, he smashes it, and he scatters them. Another great civilization arises, and God blows upon it, and it's gone. What a summary of history, and what accurate history, incidentally. And see them coming up in the Bible, these great dynasties rising one after another, Assyria, Babylon, the Chaldeans. He allows them to arise, and down they go. He smashes them with the breath of his mouth. Read your Old Testament history, my friends. And as you do so, see the hand of God in history. God will not allow any great nation to astride the earth as a colossus. You needn't be afraid. He's never allowed anybody to do it. He never will allow anybody to do it. They may appear as if they're going to do it. The world dictators come up one after another, and just when they've done everything, God smites them, and down they go. Read the book of Daniel. Read the book of Revelation. Read the history, I say. There it is. Read the secular history since the birth of Christ, and you'll see it. You see, God is there. The Lord reigneth. Let the people of God rejoice, but let the earth tremble. The God of history. He's revealed himself in history. He's doing these things. And you and I are so blind that we can't see it. We can't see it in this present century. We can't see it in the past century. And that here, there it is, before our very eyes. But as you look back at it through the eyes of this prophet in this paragraph, aren't you ready to sing with me? Frail as summer's flowers we flourish, blows the wind and it is gone. But while mortals rise, and perish, God endures unchanging on. Can't you see him? Don't you know him? Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? He's sitting upon the circle of the universe, and all its people are but as grasshoppers in his sight and under his eyes. The Lord God of history, the creator, the controller of everything that is and ever will be. But man in his ignorance doesn't see it. He doesn't believe it. He'll believe in his star. He'll believe in luck. He'll believe in the greatness of his own nation. He'll believe in a particular leader. He'll believe in learning. He'll believe in all these things and believe that they do control destiny. And the God in whose hand our breath is and all our ways he does not glorify. Oh, the ignorance of sin. The ignorance of these facts that God has proclaimed and put before us. We are without excuse, as the Apostle Paul argues. The evidence is against us. Face it, my friend, in nature, in history. Follow the mighty argument of this inspired prophet. And that brings me to my last remark.
Unbelief is folly, unbelief is ignorance. Unbelief is unaware of the consequences of its own attitude. I hesitate to say these things. I know they're disliked. I know they're unpopular. But my dear friends, if I didn't say these things, I'd be false to my calling. I'd be a cad. I'd be your worst friend. Unbelief, I say, is unaware of the consequences of its own attitude. What do I mean? I mean this. That whether you and I believe these things or not, they're facts. God is God. And God is the Lord. The fact that I don't understand him doesn't mean that he isn't there. We don't understand electricity, but there it is. And though you and I may say that we don't believe in God because we don't understand him, God remains entirely unaffected. The God who has revealed himself in creation and in history is the Lord God Almighty, the God of the universe. He is the Lord. He has the power. He's shown it in history when he's blown upon dynasties and they've gone. And when he's brought down tyrants and elevated nothings. And he is the judge of the universe. He sits upon the throne. And he'll share it with no one. He is alone. And absolute in all his attributes and powers. And you and I, my friends, are all of us in his hands, every one of us. And we can't escape him, we can't avoid him. That's what this man is teaching. He's desperate, you see. Why is he pleading with these people? Well, he sees them. They're not believing in this God. This almighty God. The business of preaching is to tell men and women, to tell us all, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But our times are in his hands. Science can't help you. Wisdom can't help you. It can't banish death. It can't abolish the end. My dear friends, when will we wake up and be wise and realize these things? What's the value of talking about our princes, our judges, our great men, our great nations, and our great ideas when we know they don't help us at this point? We are here and God is there and we've got to stand before him. And it's madness not to realize it. It's tragic folly, I say. If there were no other reason for believing in him, that would be enough. Wisdom dictates that we should believe in God. Because he is God. 
And because as God he has a right to everything. He's made us for himself and he's entitled to us. And we have no right to ourselves. For we haven't given ourselves being. We haven't given ourselves life. We haven't given ourselves health, strength or anything else. We are all to God. He's the giver of every good and every perfect gift. Wisdom alone dictates we should believe in him because not to believe in him is to pit yourself against the almighty and to invite being crushed to all eternity. But thank God I have something to commend belief in God to you which takes us beyond wisdom though that is enough and that is that this Almighty God, the Lord of the universe, though you and I, fools as we are, and pygmy creatures of time as we are, have rebelled against him, and have sinned against him, and have blasphemed his name, and have tried to spit in his face, though we've done it and deserve ultimate retribution and hell, he has looked upon us with a piteous eye. He's loved us in spite of it. His grace and mercy and compassion are such that into a world of such people he sent his only son and not only sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh but sent him to the cross and laid upon him our sins and beat him with our stripes, the stripes that we deserved. And there he's revealed his love to you and his compassion, as if to say, if you don't believe in me, on the evidence of creation and the evidence of history and the marks of my handiwork, believe me there as I open my heart to you and ask you to come back to me, that I may love you and possess you and bless you all the days of your life on earth, and then receive you to myself and share my eternal glory with you. Can you still resist him? You believe in idols. You believe in princes. You believe in judges. Can you? Refuse to believe in such a God. Beloved friend, there's the argument. See its inevitability. Put your signature to it. Set your seal to it that it's true. Turn to him immediately, without a moment's delay or hesitation, and say to him, I see it. I believe it. I can't understand it. I can't understand such love that thou shouldst ever have looked upon me in spite of my sin and arrogance. But I believe the message. Thou art so great, so good. Such love. I believe it. I accept it. I give myself to thee in Jesus Christ. Be wise. Be reconciled to God. Amen.